0: psalm 134 a song of ascents behold bless the lord all you servants of the lord who by night stand in the house of the lord lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the lord the lord who made heaven and earth bless you from zion nice short song okay let's see here um we are in judges 4 it's verses 17 through 24. Now I said this last week and I just want you to be aware of this. It's a little complicated the typology. The main thing is when we get to the explanation of what Deborah or who Deborah or whatever. I'm not there yet. So I'm not going to give it away. But uh, what she is picturing and once you get that you'll understand the context of the passage okay I had um two people this past week come up to me and uh one of them was uh, a friend that's not in the church right now he's in another country I won't give his name away but he and another person came up to me and they gave a couple suggestions and they're actually very close but there's they were incorrect and there's a reason why I will tell you this now and I'll specifically repeat it in an upcoming sermon Um uh, in about eight weeks but your typology has to match gender if you have a male uh, that's being spoken about then it has to be a male entity in the New Testament where you don't want to make the mistake of saying well uh, this is this and you can make anything say anything okay so it gets a little complicated and it's a little difficult but keep that in mind okay judges four seventeen through 24 is where we're at today However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead, with the pig in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan numbers are important in scripture whether they are being used to describe how many days or years something occurred or the number of times they are listed there is always a reason for the way things are structured in scripture nothing is superfluous the following numbers are explained by e.w bollinger and are abbreviated from his longer analyses in this chapter deborah is mentioned five times five according to bollinger is the number of grace Barak is mentioned ten times. Ten marks the entire round of anything. The Lord Jehovah is mentioned eight times. Eight is the superabundant number. God is mentioned twice. Once as the Lord God of Israel, two affirms there is a difference, there is a contrast between the two, but there is also a confirmation of something. Jabin is mentioned seven times, the number of spiritual perfection. Sisera is mentioned thirteen times. That is the number of rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, or some kindred idea. Ja'el is mentioned four times. It is the number of things that have a beginning, things that are made, material things, and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number and especially the city number. Our text first comes from Jude 1. It is verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I was surprised to see how closely the meaning of the number of instances given above fits the typology of what is presented. I won't go through that in any detail at all, but set it forth for you as a challenge to do your own checking. It's kind of like a fun assignment by your favorite teacher. As you go through the Bible, check such things as how many times something is mentioned. Think on what is presented and consider why the Lord has included details like these. The word is a never-ending source of amazing facts, figures, patterns, metaphors, and so forth. If you find your time reading the Bible to be boring, it's because you are not being inventive there's no end to the excitement that you will find in this precious word. Enjoy this number challenge. When you have time, wonderful things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is there lay Sisera dead. It's verses 17 through 24. Verse 17. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Ja'el, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Ve' Sira nas Raglav el o'hel ya'el eshet chever ha'keni. And Sisera fled in his feet unto tent Ja'el, wife Heber the Kenite. Women had their own tents, as is noted in Genesis 18, verse 6, where Sarah had her own tent apart from Abraham. Clark notes that according to the etiquette of the Eastern countries, no person ever intrudes into the apartments of the women. Thus, it would be far less suspect for him to go to a woman's tent because of the distance between the battle and where her tent was. Ellicott says, three days must have elapsed since the battle before it would be possible for Sisera to fly on foot from the Kishon to the nomad's terebinth. It may well be conceived that the unfortunate general arrived there in a miserable plight, a starving and ruined fugitive. The name Ja'el comes from Ya'el, a mountain goat or an ibex. That in turn comes from Ya'al, meaning to avail or to confer or gain profit or benefit. For example, it is used in 1 Samuel 12, verse 21, saying, And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit, ya'al, or deliver, for they are nothing. Habarim notes that because the mountain goat is so sure of its footing, it is literally an animal that benefits from its practical skill. Yael literally means mountain goat, but the deeper meaning must be considered. One who gets somewhere because of a practical skill. Verse 17 continues. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Here the term bet, or house, is used in its patronomic sense. The people were tent dwellers. The house of Heber means the family of Heber. Because there was peace between them, Heber's house did not suffer oppression, as did the children of Israel. As nomads, they made no claims upon the land. They tended to their flocks, moved as the seasons dictated, and lived without entering conflict or taking sides in conflicts. Therefore they were left to roam, untouched by the normal tides of life. As such, this was a logical place to seek asylum. Verse 18, and Jael went out to meet Sisera. Here the nature of the woman's privacy noted earlier is highlighted. Sisera did not enter the tent and demand protection. Rather, she came out to him and, seeing his plight, made the offer of refuge. Verse 18 going on, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. Vatomer elav surah adoni, surah Ela altira, and said unto him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside unto me, not fear. She makes the offer of refuge, calling him adoni, or my lord. It is a formal way of acknowledging him as honorably higher than herself. Also, the repetition of turn aside is a way of calmly encouraging him that his flight is ended. There is no imposition laid upon her and no reason for him to venture further at this time. As for the words "altira" or fear not, it signifies that he has no reason to fear being exposed to the pursuing enemy by her verse 18 continues and when he had turned aside with her into the tent she covered him with a blanket vayasar elecha haohela vat kasehu basmicha and turned aside unto her the tent of her and covered him in the smicha the covering smicha is a word found only here in scripture it is derived from the verb samach meaning to lean lay rest or support There are numerous suggestions as to what this is, but it would probably be something commonly known among the Bedouins. Thus, it is most likely a large goat's hair tent used for resting on that is commonly seen in such tents. Verse 19, then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. Of this, Lang says, Sisera is not incautious. He proceeds to ask for drink, pleading thirst. She gives him of her milk. It is an ancient Oriental practice common to all Bedouins, Arabs, and the inhabitants of deserts in general, that whoever has eaten or drunk anything in the tent is received into the peace of the house. The Arab's mortal enemy slumbers securely in the tent of his adversary if he had drunk with him. Whether he knew of this custom is unknown. The fact that she invited him in and covered him was sufficient for him to then ask for water. It is the obvious need of a man who has fled a great distance rather than water, however, it says. Verse 19 continues, so she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. The nod, or jug, would be a goatskin. It was also commonly used as a wineskin. In it was chalav, or milk, coming from the same root as chelev, or fat. Fat in scripture signifies the richest or choicest part she grants him not only something to drink to simply sustain him but something nourishing as well she then covered him up verse 20 and he said to her stand at the door of the tent the verb is masculine imperative that's important vayomer elecha amod petach ha and said unto her stand masculine imperative she's a female so it doesn't make any sense door the tent without understanding the typology it's unclear why the masculine form was used some think it was simply the more general form, Kyle says, and might therefore be used for the more definite feminine. Well, that makes no sense, but it's a gender discord and you got to come up with something. In the book of Ruth, there are numerous gender discords. If you've never seen the sermons on those, it'll only take you a couple days to go through them. I think you will enjoy them. There in the first chapter alone, I think there are seven gender discords. Every one of them has a reason. Unless you understand it's pointing to typology, the text makes no sense at all. But once you understand that, it makes all the sense in the world. The ohel, or tent, comes from ahal, to be clear or shine. The sense is, a tent that is in a field is clearly conspicuous from a distance. Sisera doesn't want someone to see the tent without her first being aware of it. Verse 20 continues, And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. And it is if man comes and asks and says, Is here man? And you have said, None. To this point, nothing has been said concerning him being chased, even if it is obvious. A commander doesn't run alone in his battle dress unless things haven't gone well for him. He is thirsty and tired. Thus, he has been in a hurry to get away from past events. Being the commander of the army, it is logical that people will be following after him to find him. He confirms this by asking her to lie for him. However, he underestimates the bonds that have existed between Israel and Ya'el's people for many years now. She will not need to lie to anyone. Verse 21, then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and took Yael, wife Heber, peg the tent and set the perforator in her hand. The inclusion of the words wife Heber provides its own emphasis. It was just noted that there was peace between Jabin and the house of Heber. And yet this tells us that the peace did not go as deeply as family allegiances. Jael was noted in verse 11 as being of the children of Hobab, the in-law of Moses. Despite having separated from the Kenites, the affections of past relationships remain grounded between Israel and the Kenites. If you listen to the Prophecy Update, you'll understand that the family feud is something that goes on forever, and the family connections are something that are inviolable. As for this clause, it contains a new and rare word, makavet. It is a noun signifying a hole or an excavation coming from nakav to pierce. Translations say hammer. The tool is used to make a perforation into something else. Thus, it is a perforator. As it says, she set it in her hand. It could be a stone, a hammer, a shaped piece of metal, whatever. It is something the tent dwellers would have handy for sinking pegs with these commonly used objects it next says verse 21 continues and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground rather tavo elav balat et hayated be rakato baaretz and went to him in secrecy and blasted the tent peg in his temple and descended in the earth the word lot a secret or a mystery is used like Eva Marie Saint she stealthily took action once near enough and with the precision of John Wick she gave a <laughs> fatal headshot to Sisera the word taka, a thrust clap or blast is used that time it signifies blasting on a trumpet in this case it is the blasting sound of pounding on a tent peg as for the word translated as temple rakah this is its first of five times that it will be seen in Scripture. It comes from the word rock, thinness. Thus, it is the thin part of the head that we call the temple. Whether one blow or multiple wax, she drilled it through one temple, out the other side, and right into the earth itself. Verse 21 continues For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Of the next words, John Lang's commentary says The passage is a curiosity of interpretation regardless it is emphatic it says va and he dead asleep and flying and dies i know that's why they say it makes no sense right so you have to think through what is being said here is another new word radam it comes from a primitive root signifying to stun thus it means to stupefy with sleep or death as he was in a deep sleep and went straight to death Translating it by Charlie Garrett as dead asleep seems to be a nice touch. The next word "oof" signifies to fly. It comes from "oof," a bird. Thus, it idiomatically meant to be faint or weary, just as when a very weary person's head will swirl as if it's flying. That's why they use that word flying. Some translations say swooned, but this is surely speaking of his state. Not what happened to him. Verse 22. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him. Vehine, Barak rodef et Sisera, Vatetse Jael likrato. And behold, Barak pursues Sisera and came out Jael to meet him. As noted earlier, this would have been obvious to her. Sisera was alone, weary, and would have had his battle attire on. She knew he was routed, and it had to be Israel who did so. All she had to do was wait and someone would be along to collect his corpse. There's no reason to assume that Barak suddenly showed up just as she was finishing the job either. It simply notes that Barak was pursuing Sisera. He pursued and she came out to meet him. Verse 22 continues and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. There is no hint of Barak first questioning her. She knew exactly why he was there and who he was looking for one can imagine her smiling and speaking with a tone of pure satisfaction or even jubilation in her voice come on in check this out <laughs> verse 22 continues and when he went into her tent there lay sisera dead with the peg in his temple it doesn't say into her tent notice the wording Vayavo eleha nofel met be rakato and went Unto her. Doesn't say into her tent. And behold, Sisera, fallen, dead, and the pig in his temple. She had purposefully left the pig in his temple, certainly for the shock value that it would bring. Sisera wasn't just dead, but he was left on display with his head fixed to the ground. The number of commentaries that absolutely excoriate her for what she did reveals an attitude which is not seen in Scripture. Through several paragraphs, Kyle distanced himself from her, as if she is some type of a pariah. At one point, he says, her heroic deed cannot be acquitted of the sins of lying, treachery, and assassination which were associated with it. Clark, likewise, seems a little bit unhappy with her conduct, saying, now, do we not find in all this bad faith, deceit, Deep hypocrisy, lying, breach of treaty, contempt of religious rights, breach of the laws of hospitality, deliberate and unprovoked murder? Wow. That is not how she is viewed in Scripture. Nor do such words align with the very next words in the passage. Verse 23 So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. There's a subtle pun in the words. Va'yakhna elohim bayom hahu et yavin bene yisrael and humbles god in the day the it jabin king of canaan two faces sons israel the word cana is the root of canaan it signifies to humble or subdue likewise canaan means humbled humiliated or subdued so canaan was humbled before Israel it's a pun the name Yehovah translated as Lord is used eight times in this chapter once it is in connection with the word Elohim has not the Lord God of Israel commanded that was verse 6 now only Elohim or God is used this signifies powers or forces that exist within him what seems to be the reason for the change is what is said in verse 9 nevertheless there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking for the lord will sell sisera into the hand of a woman jael became the instrument by which the powers humiliated jabin his armies were already defeated but more than just a rout, a woman completed the task by destroying the leader of the army This was by design of the Lord, and it is hard to imagine how anyone could impute wrongdoing to her for having sided with Israel. Verse 24, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan. There is a sense of motion and increase in the words, vatelech yad bene Yisrael haloch vekasha el yavin melech canaan, and goes, hand sons Israel, going and harsh upon Jabin, King Canaan. For 20 years, Jabin harshly oppressed the children of Israel, as it said in verse 3, and rightfully so. He was the instrument of the Lord's affliction against Israel. They had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and they had got what he said they would get for their deeds. Eventually, they had suffered enough, and he sent word through Deborah that their time of servitude was to end. With the defeat of Sisera, the hand of Israel grew. Verse 24 finishes with, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Josephus says that it was at this time, as Barak went toward Hatzor, that he met and killed Jabin. But that does not align with the words here, until which had destroyed Jabin, king Canaan. The words show a process. It wasn't as if Jabin was destroyed immediately after the defeat. But Israel progressed until the point in which he was finally eliminated. With that, the chapter ends. It is a note of victory for Israel. But it was according to the purpose and plan of God. Hence, we can anticipate that the events form typology concerning future events. The word of God, holy and pure, is given to us from his wise and loving hand. Through it, our faith is strong and sure. On the word of God, we can make our stand. With it, We know what is right for salvation unto life, and we know when to reject that which is wrong. Through sound doctrine, we can weed out theological strife, and our faith will be sure, sound, and strong. Praise be to God who has given us his precious word, he who has shown us what is true and right. The pages of the Bible are a precious cutting sword, weeding out all that is false and revealing God's glorious light. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. The passage began by noting Ehud's death in verse 1. He anticipated Christ in the last passage. Noting his death is intended to show that Christ's work is complete. We saw that when we did those sermons. As has been seen, the resurrection of Christ is implied in any such typological statements. If Christ died, he rose again. They just can't say that in advance, okay? So the typology includes both. Also, it was noted that the text implies that Israel did evil even before the death of Ehud and that it simply carried on after his death. This is not unlike Israel. Because of this, in verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, meaning the wise, intelligent one. What we see is a picture of those who come against sound doctrine, such as the intellectual elite. They stand against the wisdom of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise think of him being destroyed and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of this world for since in the wisdom of god the world through wisdom did not know god it please God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jabin is noted as the king of Canaan or humbled. In this case, it signifies those who are humbled by rejecting the work of Christ. The text also noted that he reigned in Hatzor. The name has various meanings, but the root word is what is instructing us. It comes from a word signifying to begin to cluster or gather. This is exactly what Paul writes of as expressed to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Such people are what the epistles focus on. They are the Gnostics with their secret wisdom. They are the intelligentsia who are too smart for the gospel. They are those who want to divide and destroy for their own gain. Continuing in verse 2, it noted the commander of his army was Sisra. Abarim explained that as, see the horse. The horse carries various connotations in scripture, but it is a source of misplaced trust and pride, such as in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He is noted as dwelling at Haroshet Hagoim or Manufactory of the Gentiles. Aberim noted that this name obviously embodied the strength and validity of systems of learning that were not part of Israel. A good place to see where these words point is found in Colossians chapter 2. There it says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's words of Colossians 2 deal especially with the false teachings of the Judaizers, it is obvious that those Jews who rejected Christ are not part of Israel. They are thus accounted as Gentiles in this regard. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, where he says that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is their state during the church age. Any Jew who has not accepted Christ is not truly of Israel. The state of the church since its inception and during all of the dispensation of grace is one where it is harassed by those who manufacture systems of learning that are not of Israel. That does not mean that the Gentiles are Israel, but the Gentiles are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. So anything that stands against that is a manufactured learning, pictured by what we're seeing right here. The church is not Israel, but it was grafted into the commonwealth. The number of chariots noted in verse 3 was 900. Thus, it speaks of both finality or judgment and completeness of order where nothing is wanting, meaning the whole cycle is complete. There is a time when the foes of the church will be judged, and it will be at the time when God deems the cycle is complete. That is mentioned by Paul in Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not desire brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in that is the church age understanding this it then noted that this vehement oppression lasted for 20 years as seen 20 is the number of expectancy That is just how the church age is defined based on the proper notion of a pre-tribulation rapture. If you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then there is no expectancy. But this is what the Bible shows us. Even in typology, the church age is a time set by God, but one that is left indeterminate in length for us. Verse four introduced Deborah B, but indicating formalizer. She is the one who formalizes the word of the Lord. She anticipates the New Testament. She is noted as one, a woman, two, a prophetess and three, wife or woman of torches, meaning lamps. The word diatheke, a covenant or testament is a feminine noun. The New Testament is a book of prophecy. So you've got the woman, you've got the prophetess. The word is considered a lamp In scripture, so you have the lamp. As the New Testament is 27 books, the plural lamps is given. Consider this in light of Peter's words. And we have the more certain prophetic word to which you do well taking heed as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until this day shall have dawned and the morning star shall have arisen in your hearts, knowing this first, that any prophecy of Scripture is not of its own interpretation, for no prophecy at any time was brought by the will of man, but men spoke from God, being carried by the Holy Spirit. So you've got it right there, the woman, the prophetic word, and the lamp, all in Peter's words. In all of the ways Deborah is presented, she matches how we would describe the New Testament. Of her, it says that she was judging Israel at that time. It is another perfect description of the New Testament in relation to the church. She renders decisions on behalf of the Lord, settles controversies, and so on. As I say, week after week after week, if you want to have something for doctrine, you go here. You don't go to a church book of discipline or a covenant or anything like that. Those things are made up by the church. They can be amended as they have been in most churches in the world today. This cannot The New Testament is set. It is a book of prophecy. It is feminine. Everything that describes the New Testament is seen in Deborah, all of it. Verse five said that she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. Again, it describes the New Testament. She is sitting in the place of righteousness under the palm, conveying to the people the formalized word, the Devar of the Lord. She does this between height, lofty place, and the House of God. The height, as in previous sermons, is the position the Lord places believers in because of their faith in the Lord. Bethel anticipates heaven. The word is between these two locations. The Mount refers to the gathering of believers, meaning all in the church. Ephraim means twice fruitful and also ashes. The first signifies that Christ's work has produced fruit in both the conversion of Jews and Gentiles. The second signifies the price that he paid to make this possible, which was the afflictions that he endured. Verse 5 continued with, and ascended unto her sons Israel to the judgment. This is where we go during this dispensation for judgment. As I said, we don't go to books of discipline or any other such nonsense, but especially to the New Testament epistles. Verse 6 introduced Barak, Lightning, the son of Abi Noam, father of pleasantness, from Kadesh, holy, in Naphtali, my wrestlings. Barak comes from a word found only once in Scripture. It says, Flash forth lightning, Barak, and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That's the 144th Psalm. He represents the power of the Lord to scatter his enemies. Being the son of Father of Pleasantness means that his power is reserved, as will be seen in a moment. Kadesh, holy, speaks of the state of those made holy by Christ, which is a result of his wrestlings, in order to secure our salvation. Naphtali, his wrestlings. Barak is directed to deploy with 10,000 of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor purified. The number anticipates the fullness of the church where the whole cycle is complete. Zebulun, or glorious dwelling place, signifies the position of believers in Christ, meaning the heavenly places. That's found in Ephesians 2, verse 6. Tabor speaks of the state of believers, such as is noted in Titus 2, verse 14, saying, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Verse 7 described the deployment of the enemy at the Nahal Kishon, River Kishon. The verb Nahal, as we saw, signifies to take possession. Kishon means place of ensnarement. The meanings speak for themselves. Deborah quoting the Lord says that it is where I have given them in your hand. However, Barak bulks and says he will not go fight unless Deborah goes. It reveals the necessity for a complete reliance on the word of God. The Lord will not go around his word to defeat the enemies. Please understand that. The Lord will not go around his word to defeat the enemies. Instead, the presence of the word is necessary to do so. That was clearly seen in the two propositions set forth last week. If you will go with me and I have gone, there is trust in the word if the communicator of the word is reliable. And if no will go with me, no, I will go. There is no trust in the word because the communicator of the word is not reliable next in verse 9 Deborah agreed but noted there would be no glory for Barak in the journey he was taking the glory of the victory rests in adherence to the word not by trusting in demonstrations of the Lord's power to scatter it sets forth a striking rebuke concerning modern charismatic and Pentecostal doctrines I'm sorry the Lord is not going around his word to do things with that, a note that Cicero would be sold into the hands of a woman was provided. It then noted that Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. The New Testament is given, and it accompanies the power of God to scatter. Everybody seeing what's going on here? Last week, Ehud killed Eglon, or two weeks ago christ did the work and now we are entering into the church age it's logically following along and you're going to see this all the way so far through judges six everything is following a pattern so if you follow this pattern today and we get into judges six you're going to say oh i see because it's still following a pattern and you're going to know before i give you the sermon what is going on it's rather amazing i'll tell you about judges five however before we finish Verse 10 noted that the men went as pre-planned in verse 7, and that Deborah went with them. Verse 11 brought in Heber, associate, the Kenite, meaning to acquire, out of the children of Hobab, loved, the in-law of Moses, meaning he who draws out. It speaks of those Gentiles, associates, who have acquired, Kenite, salvation through Christ's fulfillment of the law, Moses. They are united to him by affinity through his imputed righteousness still in verse 11 it said heber pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at za'anaim or elon za'anaim which is beside kadesh holy the terebinth elon carries the idea of being mighty just think of charlie garrett and you'll remember that it signifies christ's state which was then removed za'anaim removals or migrations In his migration to earth, it's picturing Christ in his coming to earth. He exchanged his heavenly aspect for an earthly one, but remained holy as he did. All of this is being seen right in these words. The Lord is painting a story for us. After that, the battle was described. It was summed up in verse 15, saying that the Lord routed Sisera, his chariots, and his army with the edge of the sword. As always, the sword is a picture of. The law sword and Horeb where the law was given are spelled identically in Hebrew. There's no difference between the two. It's just how you place it in a sentence. The meaning is that if one is not under grace, he is by default under law. Those who have not come to God through Christ's fulfillment of the law will be judged by it. Sisera, see the horse however escaped and fled on foot while Barak pursued the army as far as Haroshet HaGoyim. There it noted that not a man of the army was left, but all fell by the edge of the sword. The power of God through the fulfillment of the law of Moses destroyed the enemy. The verse speaks of absolute victory on Christ's part. Verse 17 referred to Sisera fleeing to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Her name means literally mountain goat, but the deeper meaning is one who gets somewhere because of a practical skill. She anticipates the body of believers, the church, the ecclesia, which is a feminine noun. There are individual believers that make up the church and there is the church. The two are a united entity, but more specifically, it is the church that gets somewhere because of a practical skill. We were talking about this yesterday at lunch after mission work. She said, you are a pastor. That's no big deal. You just have a job, and I totally agreed with her. I have one job, she has another job. We all have a job to do. People look at pastors sometimes and they put them on some type of a a pedestal. You don't do that, I just got a job. I happen to do it in front of you, but you all do things that I can't do, and you take care of the church, so it's a mutual thing. It is the doctrines of the church that cause the church to function properly and destroy the falsities of those who come against her. She went out to meet Sisera and invited him in, telling him not to fear. After that, she covers him with a smicha, something that should be used for resting on, maybe laying on, leaning on, something like that. Instead of supporting him, it is a covering over him. After that, he asks for water, but she gives him milk. 1 Corinthians 1 and Hebrews 5 show that milk signifies a state of spiritual immaturity. Peter equates the word to pure milk. The picture here is that of lulling the enemy with basic doctrine with that she again covers him while he gives her a masculine imperative to stand at the door of the tent as noted the ohel or tent comes from a hall to be clear or to shine a tent in a field is clearly conspicuous from a distance sister doesn't want to appear unprepared in the tent of the church as for the masculine imperative command This is certainly used because even though the church is a feminine entity, it is comprised of believers who are considered a masculine entity. With that, verse 21 noted that Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and a hammer, a perforator in her hand. The emphasis on her being a wife indicates that the church is joined to believers only. Those who are not believers may come to church, but they are not of the church. The tent peg is a clear reference to Jesus Christ. Zechariah 10:4, from him comes the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. The yated, or peg in this verse, has always been considered a metaphor for the Messiah, upon whom all of the messianic promises are fixed and fulfilled. It is with the peg, Christ, that Jael went secretly. The word is lot, a secret or a mystery. Paul refers to several mysteries in the church, but the main one that he speaks of is the union of Christ and the church, specifically as Gentiles are brought into it, and thus the Gentile bride, as was foreshadowed in several Old Testament stories. Dael, the feminine body, the church, took and blasted the pig, Christ, right through the head of Sisera see the horse meaning misplaced trust and pride once that was accomplished Barak, the power of God to scatter showed up and was invited into her tent it then said and went unto her and behold Sisera fallen dead and the pig in his temple Notice that it didn't say into her tent but unto her the power of God to scatter enters the church the victory was complete And the final portion of it was granted to the church this does not indicate as many claim that the church as an independent body is going to destroy wickedness and usher in perfection on the earth rather christ is the head of the church in both ephesians and colossians the power of god to scatter barak beheld the dead body of sisera misplaced trust and pride killed by the church of whom christ is the head and which was done in accord with the formalized word of god meaning the bible not apart from it she is the formalizer she is the new testament verse 23 then noted that god subdued jabin king of canaan in the presence of the children of israel jabin the supposedly wise or intelligent one is already defeated as indicated by being the king of canaan meaning subdued but he is further subdued as the church continues sound doctrine. You're not going to have a decent church. If you don't have sound doctrine, you can't subdue anything in this world. Hence, she was talking about that in her presentation this morning. We've got churches that are failing because they don't have pastors. If you don't have a pastor over a church that has good doctrine, the church is going to dissolve. And if they get a bad pastor, it's going to fall apart or it's going to go completely apostate. That's the way of the world in the church. That will come to its completion someday at the rapture, another noted mystery of Christ, when it will be too late for the wise of the world. Destruction will come on a global scale and a new dispensation will be ushered in after that time. Listen to what I just said in that paragraph because I think you're gonna see it coming up in a chapter after chapter five. I can't remember which one though. Anyway. Six. You know, oh, six, yeah, it comes after five, doesn't it? Thank you. The point of the verses today is that God is working through the church to accomplish the redemptive plans set forth in this dispensation. He is revealing his nature, his goodness, his sole path to reconciliation, his wisdom, and so much more through the church. However, he is not doing this through active working power of miracles, signs, wonders, and so on as when he first established the church that ended with the completion of scripture meaning the new testament the typology here shows this clearly and unambiguously god is not working apart from his word but in accord with his word and that is accomplished through those who adhere to it the passage is one that reveals the need for sound biblical doctrine to overcome the enemies we face during this dispensation and we cannot get that apart from the word that he has given specifically the Diatheki, the New Testament pictured by Deborah. The lesson then is to read the Word, study the Word, know the Word, and be a part of the church that works in accord with the Word. If we do this, we will be in the sweet spot, and how sweet it is like honey to the bee it is wonderful. Everybody, I know there was a lot of typology, a million names, a lot going on. If you go back and read this 15 or 20 times, it'll all fit perfectly. I understand that that was a complicated set of verses, but it is like a painting that God is doing in his word, showing us what he is going to do through the giving of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his church, and believe it or not, the reconciliation of the nation of Israel coming soon to a sermon near you all because of his goodness to his covenant promises not because they deserve it and not because we deserve it but because he is covenant keeping even when we are not now i said i'd explain next week i will in just a second first i want to tell you that if you have never called on jesus and i assume that you all have because you've heard this every single sunday for as many years as you've been listening you need jesus He is the key. Sound doctrine is great, but sound doctrine will not get you to heaven. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. I know lots of professors that know the Bible immensely well, and I question if they're saved. They know Bible doctrine. They know the theology, but they don't have a heart for the Lord. The Bible asks you to have one simple thing settled, that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ was buried, meaning he went into the grave with your sin, and Jesus Christ rose again, proving several things one that he had no sin of his own because if he did he would have remained in the grave two your sin remains in the grave you are eternally saved because if your sins clung to him he would not have come out of the grave and three he is the Lord God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God he must be God or the Bible is not the word of God and we are following the wrong creator but he is he is the Lord God Almighty he did this for you We're in time, we sin here, we can't go back and undo it. We're going forward and we're never gonna stop going forward in time. Jesus Christ took care of that because he came from out of the realm of time, space, and matter. He created those things. He made it possible for us to be reconciled to the eternal God. Thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Guess what was my morning reading this morning? Psalm 119. Took a while to get through. Oh wait a minute. It was yesterday. I'm sorry. It was yesterday. My days kind of flowed together. It was yesterday. So I'm a day off from there. But it's a great psalm. If you take time to read it, 176 verses broken down into 22 octaves. Octave means eight. Eight verses each. You will find joy and delight in there that you cannot believe. The day that Sergio typed that for his daily typing, he came back to me and he said, what an amazing piece of literature. Read the 119th Psalm and enjoy it. Next week is Judges 5, 1 through 5. It's not blah, 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 but so amazing and fun. It's entitled The Song of Deborah. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 13th Judges sermon. Okay. Next week and for the next four weeks, that's four sermons, we're only going through poetry. Okay, we're not doing a lot of typology. It's the Song of Deborah, and it is. I haven't been so inwardly excited about typing a sermon since the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. The the wording is so exquisite. It's so wonderful that I'm literally sitting there typing these and almost bursting out of myself. If you, if you just, and I understand, I'm translating into English and I'm gonna give you a literal translation like I do here. It's not gonna have the joy for you, but I tried to make it that way. If there is a, uh, uh, what do you call it, when the first letter rhymes and, or is the same in every uh, alliteration, alliteration, thank you. Uh, if there's an alliteration, I try to give you an English alliteration just so you can get a taste of it. It is so marvelous. I really hope you like those sermons. If you don't like poetry, you might fall asleep, but I really hope you'll like them. It's, I do bring in Christ. I explain how, those, how Christ is pictured in her words, but wow, just the, the poetry itself is so beautiful. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you okay but he can't do anything through you if you don't know the word that tells you what to do please read the bible please apply it to your life it will go well with you okay i've got a question for you i'm trying to get rid of some apple butter here for a while it's so good oh. um, okay yeah raise your hand because i do think somebody's going to get this yeah, right. raise your hand <laughs> What is the first thing that Josiah did after hearing the words of law that Hilkiah read to him? The first thing he did. Go ahead, you got your hand up first. Yeah. He tore his garment. You got some apple butter coming there. I I I said I didn't listen to anybody. I wanted to see a hand. Hers went right up. It was so fast I thought it was going to go through the roof. Yes, he tore his garment. Did anybody else say that? Did anybody? Else? Okay, so a couple people at least knew it. Okay, I was told, yeah, right. Today, when a couple people, did, I needed to have the hand up. It went up like a rocket. It was great. It was a little shy though. You were a little shy with it, but it went up really quick. Okay, got a poem, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Oh, you're gonna lo- have you had this before? Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Oh, oh, you've had okay. Oh, it's marvelous. I don't one brand or another. I that's all I've had, but it. It is unbelievable. Thank you Chuck. Chuck up in Ohio sends me these every year and oh, marvelous. It is good stuff. That was the last vacation, last day off. Day off that I've taken was up there in Columbus, Ohio with them. I took 3 days off in September of 2020 and while we were on our last day coming home from doing all oh, no, it was our second last day. I was there 3 days. Uh, we went over to the Ark and the uh, Creation Museum, which you need to do in one day each, not two. It was a lot. But on the way back, we came- went to a place called the Golden Lamb, which is the oldest restaurant in all of Ohio. And they had apple butter, and I just was like, oh. <laughs> Deborah, Judge of Israel, part two. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Yes, that's right. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket, such a sweet old dear. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for thirsty I am. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him according to her plan. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, no, this you shall do. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove into his temple the peg. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died not having a chance to beg. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Yes, she said, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera with the paganist temple dead. So on that day, God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel. Yes, they did sing. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, Canaan's king. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you may we carefully heed each thing we have heard yes lord god may our hearts be faithful and true and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone we will follow you as we sing our songs of praise hallelujah to you to us your path you have shown hallelujah we shall sing to you for all of our days hallelujah and amen heavenly father Thank you so much for this wonderful story. It's a story of intrigue and mystery, and yet it's a story of love, of the Creator's love for the people of the world who you have redeemed through the blood of Christ. Thank you that Christ is the peg that destroys the enemies and secures us firm and fast to you forever. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, the one who is revealed in the Bible, in the New Testament, in every single word. There's something about your love in Christ for us. We thank you for it and we praise you for it. How good it is to be in your presence, oh God. Thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned the book of Ruth and uh, it's so filled with typology. It's so filled with the beauty of Christ and it's only a few sermons long. I think there were 11 sermons. If you have time, watch that. And then right now, If you subscribe to uh, The Superior Word, and then you, there are sub-channels, and one of the sub-channels is Bible Bites at The Superior Word, and that's done by uh, Maya, who lives in the Czech Republic, and she takes sections of, you know, Bible studies, and she puts them up three, four minutes long, or she takes uh, sections of sermons and puts them up, but right now she is doing a special on the book of Jonah, and she's taking the entire book into couple-minute segments, so you watch one as she posts it, and In no time at all you'll be done with the book of Jonah and it is so filled with amazing detail if you've never seen that you can watch the sermons or you can watch the Bible bites either way I know that you'll enjoy it but subscribe to Maya's channel to uh, get that as she posts it from day to day okay great stuff I just I want you to know what the Lord is telling us in these these obscure stories Um, I'll give you a spoiler alert on Jonah Every single translation except one that I know of. And I usually check between 20 and 40 uh, uh, versions for each verse that I check. One that I know of actually translated um, uh, several of the last verses of the book of Jonah properly. All of them are wrong. All of them. They say 120,000 people in Nineveh. It doesn't say that. And that is key to understanding what is being revealed there. So um, uh, marvelous wonder in the word of God. Marvelous.